Thanks, Brian. I know we've said it a couple times before, and I got to start the, the worship by praying together with you that we would sing and, and glorify God. But if we haven't got a chance to meet, my name's Lance, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I've been a member of Four Oaks for coming up on 10 years now, and uh, I'm so grateful that you've come. There's going to be a moment over the next uh, little while where we're going to study the Bible together. It's a common practice of us as a, at a church here, and I am so honored to get to, to hopefully, my prayer has been that I would be of help to you in understanding that. So if you have a Bible with you, you could turn to Matthew 7. All right, so we said we were going to look at Matthew chapter 7, or at least I said that. You didn't say anything. You didn't promise. I did. Matthew 7 is where we're going to start reading, looking at the 13th verse. So Matthew 7, starting in verse 13, and we're going to read down to verse 23. So 13th verse of Matthew in chapter 7. I'm going to start reading. We're going to go down to the 23rd verse. Jesus is going to, he's coming near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to invite us. And I want us to see something here. This is an invitation. It's going to feel not very inviting because there's warnings attached to it. But I want us to see that this is an invitation from Jesus to come to him. He says in the 13th verse of Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We're going to take a moment and we're going to pray. Now, these are sobering words. And let's pray that God's Spirit gives us an ability to understand. We'll pray. God, thank you for your word. We were once far off. We were once in darkness. We were once without direction. And you speak. So speaking God, Father, who loves us and knows us as children, we ask that you would help us to understand this little portion. Just these few paragraphs of your revelation to us, we desire to know. And not only to know, we don't want to be like those who see our faces and then walk away and forget what we've seen. We want to apply. We want to know from the depth of our heart in a whole hearted, full of integrity kind of way, what it is that you would have from us, for us in these passages. I pray, God, that we would take the invitation, that you would move by your Spirit 
to help us to desire to enter. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I said that Jesus is welcoming us, which is funny to say about a passage that I stopped reading at, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And maybe your translation says, you evil people, you workers of evil. So why do we say this is an invitation? And this is why I believe this is an invitation, because in order for Jesus to be everything to you and to me, in order for Jesus to be the one path, the one way, the one true prophet, in order for him to rescue us, he must defeat all and by his spirit move in us so that we avoid all of the pitfalls of every other false savior. In order to grasp onto, with saving faith, the one redemptive power that God has given through the work of His Son, we must loosen our grip, let go of our fingers to grasp Him who is our only hope. So when Jesus says in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, He is welcoming. He's opening His arms. He's saying, there is a gate. There is a way to enter. Please come in. And then He knows because He's wise that we will be waylaid bamboozled, and too proud to enter the gate. So he wants to help us. I saw a clip one time of a tribe, they were somewhere in Africa, and they would interact with, and sort of hunt with, and have used this group of monkeys over the years. And one of the ways that they do this is they put something that's tasty and delightful that they love for the monkey to have inside of a hole that's just small enough for them to reach their hand in. And then they grasp the thing because they want it. But they try to pull their hand out and it keeps bumping against the hole. And I don't know if it's one time for the documentary crew or not. Maybe this was a hired plant of a, of a monkey. I'm not sure. But for hours and hours and hours, this animal would sit there as if completely paralyzed and not realize how to get out. Just, just can't move. Not understanding that the thing that they're grasping onto, what they believe is vital to their life or survival or health, like this is food, this is delight, this is goodness is the one thing that is trapping them. You see the illustration there? Do you see the idea? It's the one thing that if they would just learn to say, I will do this, then I can get back out and I'm good to go. I think that Jesus understands the human condition and the human heart enough that when he stands and says, there's a gate, I'm the gate, I'm the door. He's going to say this in John's gospel. These illustrations all throughout Matthew. I'm the gate, I'm the door. He wants us to enter in, but he knows that there will be things that we've grasped onto, there will be things that our eyes see that are shimmering, that will keep us from entering. And so, he tells us to be alert. He tells us to beware. There are some warnings given to those who would otherwise enter by the narrow gate. 
And we're going to look at a few of these, a few of the bewares. And I, I use that whole setup to get this idea that life is to let go, to be free. Our tendency is going to want to grasp or to be distracted or to wander. And so Jesus is doing the welcoming thing by giving us a list of warnings. And so I'm going to just say these out really, really quickly. There's a couple of them here. There's one is that he essentially says, beware the path of least resistance. So beware the path of ease. Had a little, I was, I was thinking about, I was just tempted to have a little pun, a little play on words for the title of this one. Beware the path of lull. You know why it's a play on words? Because lull could mean L-U-L-L, like you're lulled to sleep, like this path is easy. But then lull, like L-O-L, like it's just the fun path. You know what I mean? Did that, no? Did I make a mistake? Should I have kept it in? I, I was really wrestling with that one. So beware the path of least resistance, I think Jesus is going to say. He's then going to say, beware the pull of false prophets. And then finally, beware the pride of working for Jesus. Beware the path of least resistance, beware the pull of false prophets, and beware the pride of working for Jesus. So let's look at these together now. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. He's already introduced what's going to be one of his concepts, and that is that this gate is, in fact, narrow. It is the inescapable reality that when it comes to Jesus, there is no other gate. There is no other path. This is wildly and deeply unpopular in the world. To say out loud, there is one path, there is one gate, it is extremely narrow, is to be reviled in our day and age. Verses 13 and 14, the allure and the ease of what seems to be a wide gate and a wide open path is being demonstrated, I believe, philosophically, religiously, culturally, politically, everywhere in the Western world. Jesus has anticipated the desire of human hearts, the direction of human societies, and that is that over and over and over again, we will think that a wide open gate and an easy, wide, broad path is the true and best answer for everyone. And Jesus says, I want you to be alert. I want you to realize here that in reality, there is not a broad, wide gate well, there is one, but it leads to destruction. It leads to death. The path that leads to life, the one that you're after, is not to make it as wide and broad as possible, but instead to acknowledge and to find the one true narrow gate. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, you probably know this passage. This was uh, drilled into you, I hope, as, as children. That would be a good inheritance from your parents. The sofa and this verse, hopefully. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when John, John records this in the sixth verse of John chapter 14, he's not making a typo. This wasn't Jesus in a bad mood. It was a consistent teaching. You can say whatever you will concerning Jesus. You could be helped by him in particular ways. You could be encouraged by him in particular ways. But you mustn't change the, 
basis of his message, which is essentially this. I am a singular path. I am a singular gate. The path to true life, according to Jesus, don't shoot me, I'm the messenger. Jesus says the way to truth itself, imagine that, is not broad, but narrow. And this is going to be especially difficult when there is a broad, open, easy path right alongside. In other words, many flashing lights, many bits of wisdom, many bits of reasonability will tempt us toward wide ease, toward least resistance. But Jesus here and elsewhere, we've seen in John chapter 14, was consistent that he is, in fact, the one way. This kind of teaching from Jesus was so influential for the early Christians. You might say to yourself, well, sure, he said it, Lance, but we probably shouldn't say it out loud. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of narrow-minded, right? I mean, they don't know that. In some ways, I'm like, yes, that's what Jesus said. The point would be this. Did the early Christians believe that this kind of teaching was vital to their understanding of Jesus and his ministry? The answer is absolutely yes. Do you know that Christians had a name for themselves before they were called Christians? Christian, that label was derisive. It's like a nickname from the guys at school who don't really like you. You know, nobody comes up with their own kind of derisive nickname. But Christian was a sort of derisive, oh, little Christ's over there, nickname. Acts chapter 9, verse 2, we find out that Christians had a name for themselves. They had taken some teaching from Jesus and given themselves a particular name. It says this in Acts chapter 9, verse 2. They asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that, this is Saul, murderous Saul, prior to conversion to Paul, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. What we see here in Acts chapter 9 is that Saul, who is attempting in God's name to murder those or to at least affirm and order the murdering of those who follow Jesus, that what he was looking for was a particular group of people who were known as people belonging to the way. This teaching from Jesus, that he is a narrow gate, that he is a narrow path, that he is the way, the truth, the life, was so important to the early Christians that they used it to describe the very nature of what it was that they were about. They were people of the way. They had internalized this teaching of Jesus that it will be tempting to take the path of least resistance. One of the most dastardly aspects of the fall is that everything is heading toward entropy. That where the universe is given animation and life and being sustained by God, that sin has corrupted this in such that this present age, this present world is heading without effort toward destruction. I think we see this 
often. Many, many, many times the things that are the easiest are not the healthiest for us. Many, 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 many times the things that taste the sweetest are not the healthiest for us. Now, I know some of you are healthy to the point where you say there's just nothing like a good piece of asparagus. You know, you get to sleep in on a Saturday, you have a cup of coffee and a pair of sweaties on, you're just ready to indulge, and you're just mowing on those Brussels sprouts. You just love that. Your taste buds are designed for health and goodness. But for everyone else, you may ask yourself, why is it so easy to eat things that are not healthy for me? Why is it so easy to take another nap, not so easy to go to a workout? The reality is, is that this fallen world, if we're not alert to it, if we don't have an animating spirit of God in us drawing us toward the Christ, that the path of least resistance will be our path. Jesus makes it sound as though the path toward destruction and entering that gate is as easy as jumping in an inner tube and flowing with the river. You just go with the flow. And according to Jesus, again, his words, not mine, it leads to destruction. These are sobering warnings related to life and death. The heart of Jesus is not to condemn. He's going to say in John chapter 3, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world was condemned already. But he recognizes the reality of a condemned world. And so for him to welcome us by saying, enter by the narrow gate, he needs to point out the first pitfall, which is to beware the ease of the path of least resistance. He goes on to another beware. So if one potential, if one potential is to simply not be alert whatsoever, to just wander through life, to follow the river, if one temptation is there, there's a second temptation, and that is to not be discerning concerning false prophets. He says, beware the pull of false prophets. And this he says quite literally in verse 15. Beware of false prophets. Then he gives an imagery, and this is a common imagery. It's used all throughout the Old Testament. These prophets will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We've all seen this picture. I don't know what you come to in your mind, but it's quite legitimately Little Red Riding Hood. Right? I don't know if it's, that story is written specifically for this, but cute little girl comes into Grandma's house. There's a wolf. In this case, not dressed up like a sheep, but a grandma. But the point is meant to be the same. That there are some, Jesus says, who are going to speak powerfully, who are going to be prophets, who are going to be known. And yet, there is something that does not match their words, their presentation, the pull and the allure of what they offer does not match an in inward integrity. 
Jesus gives them a way to recognize this. How do you know if there's a false prophet? How do you know if someone comes to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly is a ravenous wolf? He says, well, it's going to take discernment over the course of time. You can recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer, of course, is no. And so he says that over the course of time, what is produced in the ministry or in the proclamations of a prophet who is false is not health, but unhealth. Not goodness, but badness. And that it's going to take a spiritual discernment on the part of those who would follow Jesus to not be dragged off by the pull of false prophets. I mentioned earlier that this kind of imagery is all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus, once again, is doubling down on the same things. He has not come to to get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. Deuteronomy 13. This is in the law of God. The people of God would have been taught to be aware of this. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. It says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Deuteronomy 13 is a wonderful reference for this passage for a number of reasons. First, it's terrifying. It says a prophet may come who's a dreamer of dreams and he's going to tell you something's going to happen and then it comes to pass. Wouldn't it be a lot easier if Jesus says, beware false prophets, they're always wrong and never do anything wrong right. It complicates things. The fact that we live in an active spiritual world where some of these prophets and dreamers can actually do things in a way that has all the allure of and is, in fact, full of some kind of spiritual power. You can think of the the Magi or the wise men surrounding Pharaoh when Moses goes. I don't think I ever got a good explanation, but when I was a kid, the thing that I was astounded by in Moses' story was, wait, so they turned him into snakes too? How did that happen? Anyone else wonder that when you were a kid? I had a whole list of curiosities when I was a kid that I thought we were missing the point. Or at least I wanted to slow down. Like, can this lesson be a couple weeks? Because I got questions. The reality here is that some false prophets will come not only in sheep's clothing, but with a kind of power. A kind of working that works. The reality here is that there is an active spiritual world. And if it were just that easy to determine false prophets, then Jesus wouldn't have to keep reminding us to beware. But Deuteronomy 13 also shows us exactly what it is that Jesus tells us to look for. So a prophet comes, dreams dreams, and says prophetic things, and then some of them even come to pass, and so you say to yourself, all right, I don't know what to do with this, but I'm listening. And then it tells us in that verse, if he says, let us go after other gods, I think Jesus would say now, see bad fruit. Where does it lead? Where does this lead? And the reality is that a false prophet, because he is, as Jesus is going to recognize here, a false tree, or an unhealthy tree, it will inevitably lead to bad fruit. It's one reason why anyone who is a 
wonderful communicator, a wonderful singer, gifted in all gifts, that we ought to take a patient, long-term trajectory view of anyone. It doesn't matter if you can teach in a way that peels the paint off the walls and ruffles wigs. If that person, over the course of time, is not given time for the fruit. See, that's the thing about fruit, too. You might say to yourself, it'd be nice if fruit was an instantaneous thing. Why does Jesus have to keep using agrarian language? This takes time. This means that any spiritual gifts, presented as spiritual gifts, that we are not to be overly suspicious, I don't think, or to the point where we can't receive anything good, but we are to say, let's give this time. Let's see where this leads. Let's see what kind of long-term fruit comes out of this teaching. So many of us would be better off not to overreact one way or the other, but to say, let's come up with some measures of what do we really need to see. I think what Jesus would say is that the false prophets he's talking about in some ways are the Pharisees who are listening in over the Sermon on the Mount. The question is, is does their teaching lead to pride or does it lead to humility? Does someone's giftedness lead to self-aggrandizement or to the glory of God? Does someone's giftedness leave people more richly rewarded in the sense of their spiritual lives, or does it leave them impoverished and panting for rest? Does a proclaimer of the gospel and of Jesus himself leave someone under the, the bonds of performance or Over the course of time, does it bear the fruit of freedom and lightness and rest that Jesus promises? Does a church that proclaims to have truth over the course of time, does it grow in its joy or does it become more sour? Does your Bible reading plan lead to application and to love of neighbor as self? or to more internet forum arguing. Jesus said the other week that one of the great ways to deal with how to judge is that you don't have to pick every fight. Reminds me, I saw a little picture. I guess the kids call it a meme these days. But I saw this little picture of a a wife saying to a husband, it's the middle of the night, and he's at his computer, and she says, Honey, come to bed. He says, I can't. Someone is wrong on the internet. that would be a kind of fruit. Do we proclaim to have the easy, light burden of Jesus, the security, the love, the kindness that comes with the fruit of the Savior Himself, and yet present an anxious, toiling, combative presence to the world? The question is, what kind of fruit? And it's going to take time. So on both sides of the coin, I don't believe we should overreact. If you have a fig tree, and the first couple that come out look like they're getting a little bit rotten, you don't know, is it eaten by a bird, or is this just a bad crop? Well, let's pray and wait and see. And so Jesus says, beware not only of the easy path of least resistance, but also beware that there will be some who come and have a kind of spiritual power in the world even. But you ought to wait and see. Ultimately, does their ministry, their prophecy, their dreaming, their visions, whatever it has, does it point to Jesus or does it point to self? 
Does it grow healthy fruit of the Spirit, or does it grow fruits of every other kind of dysfunction and malfunction of human formation? And this kind of teaching, Jesus says, will lead you further from the path. Remember, why is he so set on these bewares? Is Jesus just having a bad moment? Is he kind of angry? Well, he may have a self-righteous kind of indignation or anger, but the point would be this. Jesus, remember, how does he enter the whole thing? How does he intro the whole thing? He says, enter. Enter by the narrow gate. And now he's looking out and he's saying, oh man, the easy path got him again. Enter by the narrow gate. His word is proclaiming out. And then he's saying, oh man, that dreamer over there is getting him again. So beware. Path of least resistance, beware the pull of false prophets. Then finally, in a terrifying section from verse 21 to 23, Jesus says, beware the pride of working for Jesus. There's a lot of ways you could summarize this. And uh, there's a lot of ways both because it's full of meaning and also because it's confusing, I think, if we're just honest. I think there's some hyperbole here. Jesus is using an everyone, not everyone who says to me. The idea here seems to be a kind of person who has desired a shortcut path to presumed righteousness. And their shortcutted path to presume righteousness incurred, involves working really hard at all the right things and piling up a resume to show that they are a wonderful cooperative partner with Jesus. I mean, I just hate to say it, but the, the picture you get here is someone who has not humbled themselves, someone who's not actually known, but loves to name drop. And that's what Jesus is saying. Like, not just every name dropper out there is going to be welcomed in. Have you ever noticed this tendency? It's funny, just yesterday I was talking with our family about the small little town that I grew up in. There was a few things that we had. We had a post office. We had an elementary school that went up to eighth grade. There were a few churches, a gas station. There was a grain elevator. And there was a hockey rink. Because are you even a town if you don't have a hockey rink? So hockey is everything. It's 15, 20 minutes from the University of North Dakota that has a $125 million hockey arena full of Italian inlaid marble and leather everywhere and the best of all medical stuff. The University of North Dakota has put more college hockey players in the NHL than any other university. And if any of you are massive college hockey fans, I will fight you about these things if you want to later after the service. So hockey is everything. Just imagine it's the same vibe as FEC football, except there. And so when you grow up, a lot of hockey becomes, a lot of conversation around hockey becomes how close you can get to who is good and who isn't. And it turns out that two years, back-to-back years in the late 90s, my little small town of 300 people produced the two best hockey players in the in the state of North Dakota. Mr. Hockey, 1997. Mr. Hockey, 1996. Those two years in a row, best hockey player. And I found myself kind of proud. So yesterday, I'm with my kids who will never, ever meet these people probably, although they maybe have in the past at some point. They just didn't know it because they were tiny. I found myself name-dropping. Have you ever noticed this phenomenon of anyone popular, powerful, good, who does something or offers something, that all of a sudden everyone in the world who's ever been in the same zip code as them 
knows them somehow. Oh, oh goodness, let me tell you. So their mom, their mom used to teach my neighbor's kid in kindergarten. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, that was Tom Brady's mom. Or for me, like, oh yeah, Mr. Hockey? Yeah, 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 played at UND, they won a national title. Totally. Yeah, I remember, I was in sixth grade. I was, I was in sixth grade, he was in the warming house, same time as me. Yep, we're basically best friends. Or, if you're the kind of person who wants to name drop and get close to that, you'll overhear someone in a conversation about someone powerful or good, and you'll note the people who have to chime in. If you start around FSU campus or football stuff, if you start talking about Charlie Ward or Jameis or someone, and you just watch, anyone within earshot is going to get closer, and then they'll just have to chime in. Uh, One time, my aunt went on a date with them. Yeah, totally did. What's happening here is that you're borrowing the power and the fame of another. That's what name dropping is. In a sense, you're using them. You see this, the idea, the worst of name dropping is using someone and lying about your connection to them generally. And Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. He says, I've seen this. I'm asking people to enter in by the narrow gate And I've seen this. I know this will happen. People will show up and they'll try to get in without ever having come in humility and repentance to me. Without ever having been known by me, they're going to come and they're going to name drop. They're going to say, Lord, Lord, and think that the door will be opened. The reality is that these people have simply borrowed. They want closeness and proximity to the power and the access that Jesus has, but they don't want him. They want the power and the access that comes with doing religious things. And again, if you want confusion, the Lord, Lord shows up twice here. In verse 22, he says, They prophesied in his name, cast out demons in his name, did mighty works in your name. He doesn't say whether they were successful or how it happened. This is at least what they say. Part of me wants to say, no, it's totally possible because God is merciful. Sometimes good fruit comes through terrible intentions. Bad churches, people get saved. Thank God because we exist. (laughs) The point is this, I don't know if this actually happened good. It does sometimes anyway. God is so merciful. Kids turn out great with bad parents all the time. People are kind through difficulty, so there's mercy. But I also think, wouldn't a name dropper be the kind of person who exaggerates? One time in sixth grade, you were in the warming house with the guy who was the amazing hockey player, and by the time you tell someone else, he'd be like, oh, we skated together all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. My dangles? His forecheck, we were the best. So I don't know if these kind of people are actually doing religious things or if they're simply borrowing from Jesus, but Jesus seems to indicate this. They refuse the narrow gate. They want all of my power, my fame, my might. They've piled up a resume of religious works. They've come by what they believe is a shortcutted path to presumed righteousness. And then they say, Lord, Lord. The double name is indicative as well all throughout Scripture. When someone's name is, is provoked twice like this, it's a term of endearment. Of, it's like Jesus saying, truly, truly. It's a double down in the language. There's examples all throughout. You can go find one in the most important moments. God interacts with Abraham. He says, Abraham, Abraham. Moses, Moses. And then Jesus in his most endearing moments with those who are following him at times, sometimes he cries out and he says things like this, Martha, Martha. 
The idea here is that this person is trying to get close. They are giving away the the air of closeness and intimacy with the Lord. But Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Well, what is it to be known by Jesus? The way to be known by Jesus is to enter through the narrow gate, the narrow gate of humbling oneself, the narrow gate of dying to self, the narrow gate of picking up a cross, the narrow gate of repentance in sins, the narrow gate of following Jesus in all that he taught and all that he gave and trusting him. There will come a day when this narrow gate will be the path of salvation for all who have come through Christ. But if there were to be a moment of knocking and a moment of name dropping, what would be said is not what we did, but what Christ did. When you get to heaven, your hope for salvation ought not to be, let me list the resume. God, I went to church this many times. Was there 80 plus percent, as far as I could tell, way better than everybody else. This is my list of gifts. I was a tither in this way. These are the trips that I went on. These are the times that I corrected someone who took your name in vain. I mean, just list out all the things. This was my VBS attendance. Is that what a person known by Jesus will say as an entryway into heaven? The answer, of course, is no. Those who enter by the narrow gate are those who approach heaven And in humility say, I have no righteousness but that which I've been given by Christ. My sins have so separated me from the holiness of God that I do not deserve for one moment to be here. All is grace. That is what it is. When the Spirit of God awakens you, when, as Jesus is going to say in John chapter 3, a kind of new birth happens in your life, you begin to see that all that you had piled up as a religious resume is not going to cut it. It's an embarrassment to even bring it up. And so what is evidenced here is those who bring up their resume do not understand who Jesus is, do not understand who they are. They are those who refuse to admit they're sick so they can therefore never benefit from the doctor. The flip side of these warnings, if we said beware the path of least resistance, it seems like the flip side is to be vigilant and to be alert to the ease of sliding down the river. What's the flip side of beware of false prophets. The flip side would be to be patient and discerning. What's the flip, flip side of the pride of working for Jesus? Well, the flip side would be to lay down all of your works. That not in pride, but in humility to say, I have nothing to offer. If I... I'm going to enter into this narrow gate. It's going to be because I have a Savior who loves me. A Father who knew me before the foundation of the world. A gracious plan of redemption that was put into place not because of anything that I merited, but simply and only because God is gracious and loves to love. And then Scripture has a a phrase for this. What happens when that takes place When you become alive in your soul in that way, it's not that you have come to know God, but you've been known by Him. 
Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul describes this. Of course, in our experience, we come to know God. In our experience, that's the way that it works. But he says in verse 9 of Galatians chapter 4, but now that you have come to know God, and then there's a comma there, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? The reality here is that your entry into heaven will not be your ability to name drop Jesus or to get close to him or to borrow his power or to pile up a resume. The question will be not, do you know him? But are you known by him? Has Jesus forgiven you? Has Jesus, through you crying out in submission to him, has he made you new? And this is how we enter the narrow gate. I don't know which one of these is the the tempting point for you. I don't know if you're an easy path kind of person. You're like, yeah, that's me. I just, I have big desires. I have big joys. I have big excess. I float. Then would the Spirit of God give you alertness? I don't know if you need more discernment. Maybe you say, you know, I'm just naive. I listen. You know, what's funny too, I mean, as a whole aside, one of the worst false prophets is ourself. Like we, we just, we tell ourselves the worst of, of lies. So I don't know if it's false prophet. You need discernment. May the spirit of God give you discernment. I don't know if it's a pride of working for Jesus. Maybe you're religious and that's where you're putting your hopes. Then we pray, spirit of God, humble us. Help us to be known by Christ, not to claim goodness for ourselves. The point would be here is that it seems like to have an integrity of inside to out, we must all admit that we are tempted in these ways. And that our great desire is to listen to the invitation of Jesus to enter. At the end of all things, that would be the travesty. Not that you misunderstood teaching from the one pastor guy at the place there, or that somehow you didn't do it perfectly. The tragedy would be that you don't enter. So please, by all means, listen to the invitation of Jesus. Humble yourself. Confess your sins. Give up your works. And you will have entry through Christ who is our gate. Let's pray.